With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. So, are the Steelers really an undisciplined team, particularly on defense? Or is this something that was just a one Sunday mirage? Good morning to you. Good Wednesday morning. I'm Dan Kovacevic of DK Pittsburgh Sports, and this is the newly reborn DK Sports Radio Podcasting Network that you can find on all platforms, everywhere. Please make sure you set us to automatic downloads. It makes a big, big difference for this little business. So yeah, the Steelers are off to a 2-0 start. There isn't that much to complain about that we're certainly going to find it because it's just who we are as people who follow the Steelers, the expectations that are attached to that franchise. But one rather glaring and legitimate thing to complain about from this 26-21 to victory over the Broncos, in addition to the fact that the Broncos obviously should have been put away a lot earlier, specifically was the 10 penalties assessed to the Steelers for 89 yards. Four of those were for defensive pass interference, two for holding on offense, another for roughing the passer, another for a horse collar tackle, another for delay a game, another for an illegal block in the back that cost Deontay Johnson a punt return touchdown. That was Cam Sutton. He had no business touching that guy or even coming near him. Deontay was already by him. Not a great look. Not a great thought process by an otherwise really good and smart football player. A lot of these kind of went like that. Uh, they were they were head scratchers. And to be sure, Mike Tomlin wasn't appreciative of this. It took him all of about 8.7 seconds immediately after the game Sunday to bring up all the penalties. And then it came up again yesterday in his weekly press conference on the south side we do not make excuses um we're going through the logistical procedures today uh to secure some officiating for practice we've been in communication with the league office to make sure that we're adhering to all the protocols and doing whatever is necessary to make sure that we're we're in compliance and everyone is safe but the bottom line is uh we need to ratchet up our quality of play in that area and that's just a reasonable approach to take in terms of doing so and that's fair and he's right and he was right further later in the press conference to either absolve or ignore the actual officiating because there's just no point to it at least not externally internally the coaches when they break down their own film do look at whether or not an actual foul was committed whether or not the call was good, and they will let the player know. However, even in that setting, they will make sure that the player understands, hey, 
listen, even though you didn't actually commit a foul, here's how you put yourself in a position to be called. For example, if a cornerback is chasing a wide receiver down the field and he doesn't do anything at all to draw the DPI, that still doesn't necessarily let the corner off the hook from having been beaten down the field. You see what I'm saying? So how did you put yourself in position to get that flag? What are ways you could have avoided even having a close call there? Those are the kinds of things that the coaches, the players in their classroom settings will revisit on a Monday and on a Tuesday following a Sunday game before they resume practicing in preparation for the following week on Wednesdays. And here's hoping, oh, here's knowing that Tomlin and his entire staff are going to do that and take care of it. The Steelers had only been called for that many penalties in a game one other time in the previous 30 games they've played. So this isn't some recurring thing. This isn't some new drama element. I know everybody's always looking for drama elements when it comes to the Steelers. And I'll say that that applies double to this defense. Four defensive pass interferences is an awful lot in any game against any opposing quarterback, never mind Drew Locke and Jeff Driscoll. And yeah, as I mentioned earlier, the Broncos were heaving up the ball. They felt that was their best chance to work around the Steelers' front. And you know what? To some extent, they were right because they did connect on some of those plays and they did get their points off of big plays. And maybe the Steelers' secondary wasn't as crisp as it should be because those guys are so used to all that pressure up front. In addition, being fair here, Mike Hilton spent more than half the game up at the line of scrimmage. Terrell Edmonds saved the game up at the line of scrimmage. So they were even involved in the rushes. Blitzing 63% of the time. Blitzing 63% of the time. Who does that? But those are the gambles that you take, and the secondary has to respond better than they did. I think they will. I think there's a natural... What's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, complacency that can set in when you look across the line of scrimmage and you see a Jeff Driscoll versus lining up across, uh, you know, from, well, you know, this coming week, Deshaun Watson or down the road, Lamar Jackson. Uh, when you know that there's a quarterback on the other side who can hurt you, you can say all you want about preparation, but there's there's just going to be more of a cold, hard focus on stopping the pass. And I don't know that the Steelers were all that equipped for it. In general, I don't see a discipline problem. I did agree with Vince Williams' assessment on Twitter that the Steelers were playing two teams, at least in what I'm sure he was referring to because there was a pass interference call on Devin Bush where... Vinny just lost his mind out on the field. I don't know if they showed that uh, on TV. You could see it from the press box where he just freaked out, and then he was still just 
shaking his helmet and everything else on his way off the field. And I kind of had a feeling Vinny was going to pop off afterward in whatever form he could, and that ended up being on Twitter with that tweet. Um, yeah, Devin Bush didn't touch that guy. But the Steelers in general aren't a group that's going to be hit by a lot of penalties. They don't have dummies on the team. They don't have loose cannons. Uh, they don't have any Vontez, Pac-Man types. I think this is going to be a one-and-done issue. If I was worried at all about the Steelers and penalties, it was going to be on the offensive line, given that Kevin Dotson was making his NFL debut at right guard and that Chuk Sikorafor was making his first start at right tackle. But again, there were just the two offensive holds. Um, that's not terrible over the course of a game. If the offensive line can keep from holding, I really don't think flags are going to be a problem. So I'm throwing the flag right here on anybody who wants to cite discipline as being an issue. Unless, of course, it comes up again Sunday. That's the beauty of doing this thing every day. You can completely change your tune or modify it as you go. When we come back, a rare fun night at the ballpark. Ball, the Pirates were 3-2 winners last night over the Cubs at PNC Park on a walk-off home run by Jacob Stallings. This was right after Sam Howard had given up a home run to Anthony Rizzo of Chicago to tie the score, and it had that whole feel just like all these other games have. And then Stallings comes up and puts the ball inside the left field foul pole, getting it over the bleachers there onto the concourse. Of course, nobody there to catch it. The ball, I'm sure, is just still sitting there. Part of the tons and tons of weirdness still going on in sports and in our world. This segment of Daily Shot is brought to you by our friends at the Greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank who are having a special day today. And we hope that you join us in joining them for a 10 a.m. announcement regarding the food bank's future. I know what it is, but I can't share it here. But I do want you to pay attention to it. Uh, we're going to make sure that we put something out on Twitter when it happens. Uh, you can follow along uh, on Twitter at, PG, at, at PGH Food Bank, or you can go to their website, pittsburghfoodbank.org spell that out pittsburghfoodbank.org and if you want to find out something about this announcement in advance they have a website for that too it's growsharethrive.org giving you that one again it's growsharethrive.org these are good people on a good mission working to make sure that the people of this region who are in need of food have access to it. One more time, 10 a.m. today, important announcement regarding the food bank's future. I had mentioned on yesterday's show the angst, the challenge, the massive challenge of trying to pick out the 
three Pirates Award winners that we in the Pittsburgh chapter of the Baseball Writers Association of America are tasked with doing every year. These are just for the Pirates, and there are three of them. There's an MVP, there's a Pitcher of the Year, and then there's a Chuck Tanner Award for media cooperation. All three of them are actually tough considering the clubhouse wasn't open all season long. Uh, so you're basically just judging off, you know, who who was the, the friendliest on the Zoom calls, right? And I ran through a bunch of MVP candidates, and, and the, the one that I ended up kind of settling on was Jacob Stallings. And I, and I did it with probably a tone of remorse. And, and I'm here to take it back. And, and yeah. I, I can be that guy who's moved by the last thing you see. You know what I'm talking about. The, the, the last act you see from anybody, and this, this doesn't just apply to sports, but anywhere, is the thing that you remember the most. So when Stallings hits that ball over the fence and has this huge smile on his face, even rounding first base, uh, and he gets home, and you can see how much his teammates respect him. Uh, the embrace that he got uh, from first from Richard Rodriguez, who got the W, but then from Derek Shelton, really uh, a warm hug. It was a nice scene. The Pirates, it's strange for a, a team that's won 16 games. I want to say six or seven of them have these been these big dramatic finishes, you know? Really, really weird. The ratio is really, really high. Let's put it that way. <laughs> nice scene for him. Uh, Jacob Stallings is a strange case locally in terms of perception and reaction from the fans. I still see, hear, and read from a lot of people who attach him to his dad, uh, Kevin Stallings, who was... Pitt's worst basketball coach maybe ever in the couple of years that he came here and just destroyed everything that Ben Howland and Jamie Dixon had built up. And there are people who actually admit, like, I have a hard time rooting for this kid because he kind of looks like his dad. Um, all of which I find really strange considering that Pitt basketball isn't anywhere near as big a deal in our town as the Pirates, but, you know, you're going to have some kind of cross-pollination there, and that's the reaction that some people have. But I think beyond that, it's that the Pirates had Russell Martin, you know, hitting the home run off of Johnny Cueto after Cueto dropped the ball, and you have Francisco Cervelli come in with all that flair and all that personality, and the that's Amore when he comes up to the plate. And this city's been spoiled there aren't a lot of things you can say about baseball that this city's been spoiled by, but uh, it's had an abnormally great run of closers up until the Felipe Vasquez uh, arrest. And it's had a really, really, really good run, great run, arguably, of catchers for a very long time. So when here comes Kevin Stallings' son 
you know, who wasn't ever regarded as a prospect. By the time he did come up, he was already old. I mean, he's 31 now. And by the time he arrived on the scene, he was your third-string catcher behind Cervelli and Elias Diaz. Never mind that Diaz was awful at just about everything. After having a nice run of hitting in 2018, he just completely bombed in 2019. And Stallings comes up and just basically takes over. Uh, never in an arrogant, presumptuous way. Never in a, hey, I'm here to be the starting catcher kind of way. But every chance he got, every small chance he got, he made it count. He worked with the pitching staff as if he'd been around them all his life. In some cases, he'd obviously worked with them before in the minors, so that helped. But he took ownership of it. He was passionate about it. He was deeply invested in the pitchers, uh, not just in their work on the mound, but also in getting to know them. Coach's son. I've said this to him several times, and I said it to him again in Bradenton. I said, you act like a coach's son, and he just laughs about it. I think he has a pretty good idea of what everybody thinks of his dad around here. And he, I think he takes it in the, the spirit in which it's intended, which is positive. Coaches' sons, coaches' daughters in any sport are like that. They're basically de facto coaches on the field or on the court or on the ice. You know what I'm saying? He has a lot of that in him. So when the Pirates told everybody over the offseason... Yeah, this is this is our guy. He's our catcher. And everybody was like, I mean, you remember this. Actually, you were probably part of it. Wow, this is just awful. How can they He was the most singled out of all of the Pirates starters. That's not an exaggeration on my part when people would cite examples for why the 2020 Pirates would stink. Now, they did stink. They have stunk I'm sure they will stink for the rest of this week. But Stallings didn't. The advanced metrics on Stallings, a lot of people rolled their eyes about that, the pitch framing and everything, were one of the things that Ben Charrington, Derek Shelton, and I need to mention, too, Glenn Sherlock, who was brought in as a catching instructor that the Pirates didn't have before. They wanted somebody to just really, really nail that position and Sherlock was all over these guys uh, in Bradenton saw it with my own eyes Stallings Luke Maley who you remember was supposed to be the backup catcher he was lost for the entire season in the opening week and John Ryan Murphy uh, the two backups were never supposed to hit they were supposed to be here just for defenses the Pirates were just going to really really prioritize defending and Stallings has done that. He's delivered, not just with the pitch framing. His arm is deadly accurate. His ratio of throwing out would-be base stealers is among the best in baseball. He prevents runners from advancing who knows how many times just by them knowing that he's back there. He's picked guys off first base. He's picked guys off second base. And more important than either of those two things, although those are the glamour things that a catcher does, he's 
got to be one of the very best at blocking pitches in the dirt. And that allows your pitchers to develop trust, throwing off-speed pitches late in the game, late in an inning with runner at third. Uh, They'll throw it because they feel confident that he's going to stop it. But on top of all that, he's hitting close to 260, which is definitely not bad for a catcher. It's above average in the majors. He's shown a little bit of pop. He's shown a lot of timeliness, if you're the sort that believes in that sort of thing, being uh, an actual trait in sports. I am. He's come up with big hits. He's just turned into a really nice baseball player. And I'm going to repeat, he's 31, so he's not going to be somebody that gets people excessively excited because you're thinking, hey, he's either trade bait. I advocated that myself at this past deadline. Or he's not going to be around long enough for whenever the Pirates do get back to being good, theoretically. Because he couldn't possibly be part of any kind of building or rebuilding. Maybe he can. Maybe if you're the Pirates and you value smarts, sound fundamentals, and stability at that position because of the impact that he can have on your young pitchers, then you'll take it. Then you'll say, you know what? Maybe we'll develop another younger catcher underneath him and give him time, but we want this guy here for now because we want him to be the one who works with Mitch Keller, for example, with the younger guys that they'd have, with JT Brubaker, guys that have actually made a little bit of an impact and have a lot of a future with the Pirates. Anyway... All I'm saying here is Jacob Stallings for a team MVP. And this time with no snark, no joking, no nothing. Jacob Stallings for team MVP. He's earned it. When we come back, a little bit of hockey. Welcome back. The Stanley Cup Final resumes tonight in Edmonton. Game three between the Stars and the Bolts. The series is tied 1-1. I fully expect that the series will be untied in the Stars' favor after this one. There's so much I like about this Dallas team that if I start talking about it, I won't get to what I actually want to talk about, which is the local franchise. This portion of Daily Shot is brought to you by our friends at Luxembourg Garbett Kelly & George. That's a personal injury law firm that represents people who get hurt in car accidents, people working through workers' comp cases, medical malpractice claims. The attorneys at LGKG pride themselves in doing what they say they're going to do. They've been keeping those promises for more than 80 years. They've been designated as super lawyers for over 15 years. That is a rare combination in that industry, as anyone can attest. LGKG has offices in Cranberry, Newcastle, Beaver Falls, Butler, and Elwood City, and you can learn more about them online at lgkg.com or by calling 888-842-5454. Tell my good friend Larry Kelly that we sent you, too, when you do that. I mean it. 
Jim Rutherford uh, spoke with our site yesterday, and there wasn't that much to update, that much to share, but, you know, we check in. Dave Molinari, our Hall of Fame hockey writer at DK Pittsburgh Sports, was the one who placed this call, and one of the things that, of course, we checked in on was how any potential trade talks might be going as it relates to Matt Murray and Tristan Jari. And Jim's funny. When when he does this with you, he, as open and honest as he is, he also understands that it's going to be read somewhere. So he's always sending signals as well. Does that make sense? Because you can do both things at the same time, and he does. And the point that he kept emphasizing in this particular interview was that the Penguins are offering something that no one else in the NHL is, and that's young goaltenders who've been successful who are heading into their prime. And he says this because he knows that there's going to be Glut is too strong of a term, but there's going to be a lot of available goaltending when the free agency market opens shortly after the NHL draft, which is going to be in the first week of October, for anybody who didn't know. Braden Holpe's going to be out there. That's the headliner. But a lot of other guys will be available. And there are teams that need goaltending. But Jim's got a couple of good reasons to be confident that he can get something good for his. One, although he's not going to say this, I will. The Montreal Canadiens gave up a third-round pick to the St. Louis Blues for Jake Allen, who is terrible at goaltending, okay? I mean, there are some guys that, like, I'll, I'll hedge my descriptions when they're not good, but there are maybe a handful of goaltenders in the NHL who are just outright terrible, Jake Allen is one of them. The Canadians gave up a third-round pick to get Jake Allen to be Carey Price's very distant backup. I have no idea what Mark Bergevin was thinking in making that trade, but Jim Rutherford owes him a debt of gratitude because there's at least some kind of bar that is set by that. I've said all along that if the Penguins can get a second-rounder for Murray, and it is going to be a draft pick, by the way, that they get. So don't get super excited about, you know, player return or anything like that. Uh, Rutherford's already essentially told us that. He has to cut cap space. I mean, he has to create cap space, plain and simple. So he's going to move somebody. But you notice that I'm doing the same thing that Rutherford's been doing, that I'm not saying he's going to move Murray. This is... Interesting, because Rutherford's in a spot here where he wants everybody to know that he's giving up a goaltender. But he never says which one. You'll notice this. He's been completely consistent about it. He never says which one. Everyone knows it's going to be Matt Murray. There's absolutely no doubt it's going to be Matt Murray. But he won't say that. He also won't say why he won't say that. 
So I'm going to exercise some license here and make an attempt at it. I believe that Rutherford doesn't want to say or suggest that he's just trading Matt Murray because that can come with a negative connotation. Oh, yeah, we're trading this guy. It sounds like we're getting rid of him. He's won two Stanley Cups for us, and he's young, but we're getting rid of him. It sounds like they're done with him. It sounds like the Cups were a flash in the pan. Don't take this particularly seriously. We believe in this other guy a lot more. Please come and take our guy that we don't believe in anymore. Right? Isn't that how you'd at least subconsciously perceive it? I, I sure would. Whereas, doing it this way, he's making it sound like, come and bid for my two guys. Come on, let, let's hear your best price. I mean, if this is what you'd offer for Murray, what would you offer for Jari? Or if this is what you'd offer for Jari, then what would you give me for my guy who's got the two rings? He can play one off of the other. This is how you get into the Hall of Fame. I know there's a lot of people that are down on him, principally because of the endless Jack Johnson stuff. I get it. Jack's not a, a good NHL defenseman. He's not a good fit for this team. But man, people take this into some crazy territory. But Jim Rutherford tends to get the most of his trades, including maybe especially the trades that are bigger in scope, that are bigger in importance. And moving someone like a Matt Murray, I believe that Rutherford's objective here, in one form or another, is to get a first-round pick. I really do. Uh, there is a part of him that, and I've heard this in conversations that I've had with him, including just casual ones, there's a part of him that just dismisses the draft because he looks at who he has right in front of him. And it's been this way for years. And says, ah, you know, we'll deal with that when it comes. But then there's another part of him that looks around right now at the Eastern Conference at teams that have these young, exciting players coming up that are starting to skate circles around his guys, whether it's a Philadelphia, whether it's a Carolina uh, of Vancouver and the other conference, and you just see these young guys and these young legs, and you're thinking to yourself, well, I mean, we've got Samuel Pullen. And it, he wants to have younger players, but then he looks at what it, what's in Wilkes-Barre, and even at levels around that, you know, meaning juniors, Europe, wherever, where they have players throughout their system, there isn't anybody that's really all that exciting other than Samuel Poulin, maybe to a lesser extent, Nathan Legare. I really think that's it. And I don't know how much anyone's going to get super excited about Legare until he shows he can really skate at the NHL level. Poulin can. He can do that right now. I really think that Rutherford's main objective here is to get a first-round pick so that his scouts at that cyber draft table, at that virtual draft, 
can have a first rounder so that they don't do all that work and not that you're doing it for them but you know what I'm saying you you got to make sure that these guys feel good about what they're doing not just collecting a paycheck they're those jobs are heart and soul jobs and that includes the people who are doing the the advanced metrics and the analysis if you do that all year long and then your GM dumps all your picks and you're sitting there at the table with three or four of them and they're all in the later rounds, you're like, what am I doing here? The guy doesn't even care. Way more important than that, you do want young players coming in. Maybe it won't be right away. In fact, it definitely won't be right away. Certainly not if it's a second round or third rounder. But you do need to move them into your system because if you keep saying the same thing year after year after year, that's how you get to this point. So Rutherford is not just playing all his cards, but he's also playing some games here. And if he's successful, you'll know about it, and you'll know about it on draft day. Thanks so much for listening to this one. Your front door. Your car, your gym locker, your gun. Safety is a habit. Learn more about how to keep guns safe and secure. Visit projectchildsafe.org.